This is hell. Welcome to America. This is hell. And if you don't think this is hell yet, you may soon see the hell that is happening right now in Atlanta, happening in a town near you. This week, we're talking about Stop Cop City a lot, as what is taking place is not an anomaly, but in fact could be a harbinger of things to come as the state, governments, and the police respond to growing inequality, worsening climate change, within our profits over people, system, and structure. We start our back-to-back conversations about Stop Cop City with activists who, with an activist who has uh, written articles posted at Scalawag Magazine by speaking with Micah Herskind, who wrote the Scalawag Magazine article, This is the Atlanta Way, a primer on Cop City. His other recent writing includes the MSNBC post, If those supporting Cop City prevail in Atlanta... Your city could be next. Arresting bail fund organizers is just the latest strategy that city and state officials have used to criminalize dissent and to attack those of us working to stop Cop City. Micah is an organizer and writer based in Atlanta. You can follow Micah on Twitter at MicahInATL. That's M-I-C-A-H-N-A-T-L. Find out more about Micah at his website, Micah. Herskind, H-E-R-S-K-I-N-D dot com. Produce, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast, live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Kat Jarvanen. Kat, how was your weekend? My weekend was pretty good. I did a bunch of yard work and had a little family barbecue with my partner's family. So Really? It's pretty nice. Yeah, I got to enjoy the, the sunshine a little bit this time. So you have access to a yard? Yes. Wow. Front and a backyard. Wow, fancy you. Do you live in a two-flat or something? Yes, yes, I do. And so your other neighbors don't mind, or they work with you? Um, It's actually my partner's family. So. Oh, so, oh, yep. that's awesome. Oh, that works out great. That's yeah, fantastic. Great. Yeah, uh, we. I really miss a yard. Uh, even though I have a park right outside my back deck, uh, I really miss having a yard. Even though we... We still pay somebody in our neighborhood like $25 uh, like every couple of weeks to mow our lawn. Our lawn is approximately 120 square feet. <laughs> so I think we're just doing it to be nice. Yeah, that's, that's sweet. That's sure. Keep somebody in the neighborhood in business. So because of our upcoming anniversary party for the show and my upcoming surgery in eight days, both of which I'll tell you more about in a moment, and friends and family deciding that right now is a perfect time to visit. I have no weekends anymore. However, I know that, like I said, in eight days when I go under the knife one more time, I won't be able to do a damn thing. So I'll likely be bedridden for up to 72 straight hours, and I cannot wait. Ah, to be summer and confined to a bed. A quick reminder, we are doing a full week of shows this week, streaming live Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Podcast shortly after every day, and our world broadcast premiere will take place, as always, on Saturday mornings on Chicago Sound Experiment. WNUR 89.3 FM, as it always has every week since 1996. But next week, we are only doing a show on Monday. Next Tuesday morning, I will be undergoing what will hopefully be the final medical procedure in my 16-month health Nightmare. So starting next Tuesday and throughout the 4th of July week, we will be playing interviews we did back in the aughts right around the 4th of July. We'll start by sharing a July 2007 conversation on 
the structural imbalance of political talk radio, which explains how the right wing's grip on the airwaves is because of a failed, flawed market, not a cultural shift to the right. Who knew taking limits off corporate ownership of the airwaves would lead radio to become dominated by reactionaries on the far right who normalize racism, misogyny, hate, and would usher in a rise of fascism in the United States? Oh yeah, everyone who opposed the Clinton administration's Telecommunications Act of 1996, which, like many of the things President Clinton did, put profits before people, in this case corporate power over democracy. Next week, we'll also feature a discussion we had later on that same day, 7707, when we learned about the rise of Christian conservatism and what it would likely mean for politics in the United States. The following week, the week of July 4th, we start by playing an interview on a book titled, Just How Stupid Are We? Facing the Truth About the American Voter. On the 4th of July, tune in to hear our talk from July 4th, 2008, when we discuss the institutional balance within modern democratic systems being disturbed and dysfunctional and the unhappiness citizens in Western states have about their political leaders' remoteness, corruption, or lack of accountability, all of which can be traced back to the type of political economy that has dominated since the 1980s, whatever you want to call that political economy, whether it's Reaganism, Thatcherism, or neoliberalism. We wrap up next week with an interview from 2009, also on July 4th, on the United States empire of military bases around the world that has only expanded since then. So, new shows this week and next Monday, and then classic conversations from our archives that will give you plenty of reasons to blow up explosives for you and your neighbor's amusement and delight. But more important than any and all of that, Kat, what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, how will you be celebrating Grimace's birthday? How will you be celebrating Grimace's birthday, which may be the dumbest question from hell we've ever asked, uh, but there you go. It's great potential for really saying awful things about McDonald's, which is always pleasant to do around the 4th of July because people think McDonald's is very American, and it is, and that's really sad. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us, or you can send us an email, chuck at thisishell.com. So you can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, tweet at us at thisishellradio. Email us, Chuck, at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell following a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. If you your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff that is now available at thisishell.com when clicking on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell and Cat has this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is a hormone. In March, Euronews.com posted the story, Hangover Cure? Hormone shot that sobers up mice offers hope for treating drunk humans. Writer Camille Bello reports, Scientists have been able to quickly sober up inebriated mice by boosting their levels of a naturally produced hormone they share with humans. Why sober up an inebriated mouse? <laughs> like he's having a good time. Yeah, let him be. Exactly. <laughs> Um, they share with humans giving hope for a potential hangover cure. The hormone, which is called FGF21, nice name, <laughs> has drawn scientists' attention for years. It is produced by the liver and plays a significant role in helping both humans and mice process certain foods, particularly alcohol. 
my favorite food. <laughs> I know. Well, they're a little bit obsessed about getting mice drunk. I'm really concerned about what's happening with these mice once they're drunk. <laughs> the, uh, the hormone suppresses the craving for alcohol in mice and monkeys when drunk. <laughs> Stimulates thirst for water, presumably to protect against the dehydration caused by alcohol consumption, and protects against alcohol-induced liver injury. Uh, Bella then quotes Stephen Kluwer, senior authority of the study, stating, Scientists have known for a long time about the role of the liver metabolizing ethanol, but now we know that it is releasing this hormone that, at least in mice, acts on the brain to keep them alert. That's right. We're doing everything we can to damage our liver. Our liver is doing everything we it can to keep us alert. Isn't that crazy? That's the weirdest thing in the world. Wow. Yeah, that's that's wild. Um, well, that makes this week's hangover cure a hormone in your liver. And if you're a mouse, apparently you're not allowed to be drunk. We are still looking for musicians to perform at this year's This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, This Is Art, when we will be celebrating 27 years on air. As always, the party features, again, the opening of the Art Show, This Is Art, as well as good food, a raffle of This Is Hell-related prizes, and live music. In fact, we are still confirming musicians to perform. If you would like to recommend a musical act to play during the party, Send your suggestion with a sample or a link to their music to chuck at thisishell.com. And please keep in mind, we have been told we pay musicians far too much than we should. Also, if you would like to donate what you think would make a great raffle prize, email your idea or ideas to chuck at thisishell.com. So far, we have had some outstanding donations for raffle prizes. There's the classic 1984 Avalon Hill board game Class Struggle donated for the raffle, as well as the Tessa Collective card game Space Cats Fight Fascism. We also have a subscription to Detroit-based Kennedy Prints, which will be sending a print every month to the home of a raffle winner. We will also be raffling off framed Kennedy Prints. There will also be This Is Hell merch, including a Boise, Idaho artist who is sending a handmade glass This Is Hell shot glass. And last week I accidentally identified that artist as being from Seattle, and my apologies. Boise, Idaho artist has made us a handmade shot glass. And we are working on confirming a free place to stay in Seattle, Washington as a raffle prize. Each raffle prize winner will also get a free piece of This Is Hell merchandise and a framed print from Detroit's Kennedy Prince. That's the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show. This is Art Saturday, July 22nd, beginning around 3 in the afternoon when Carrie's opens at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Coming up, Kat has more answers, uh, as some of your answers to this week's question from Hal. We will tell you what happened during last week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell and tell you what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell and fortunes are being protected in the increasingly unequal United States about an increasingly militarized with a, a poli- increasingly militarized police force that are now 
being given state-of-the-art repression facilities to train in urban warfare against the public who they see more and more every day as terrorists, not citizens, and to protect and serve. Here to give us a deep background on Stop Cop City and why it should be a concern to everyone in the United States, not only those living in the Atlanta area, Micah Herskin wrote the Scalawag Magazine article, This is the Atlanta Way, a primer on Cop City. His other recent writing includes the MSNBC post, If those supporting Cop City prevail in Atlanta, your city could be next. Welcome to This is Hell, Micah. Thanks so much for having me. You, Good to be here. You are doing exceptional writing on this, and I truly appreciate it. You can follow Micah on Twitter at Micah in ATL and find out more about Micah and all of his writing at his website, MicahHerskine.com. You write that the struggle to stop Cop City is not just a battle over the creation of a $90 million police urban warfare center. It's not just a fight to protect the 381 acres of forest land known as one of the four lungs of Atlanta and currently under threat of destruction. It's not just a conflict over how the city invests the over $30 million it has pledged to the project to be supplemented by at least $60 million more in private funding. The movement is all of those things, but even more fundamentally, the struggle to stop Cop City is a battle for the future of Atlanta. To what extent do you think the public in Atlanta recognizes this as such a significant fight for the future of Atlanta. How much do you think people recognize that this is about what the city will look like in 5, 10, 20 years? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that more people are catching on every single day, um, you know, and, and, and learning about what's happening. I think this is sort of a mass movement in Atlanta, like has not been seen for a long time. And, you know, of, of course, you know, as with anything happening during the 2020 uprisings, even I'm sure that there are people, you know, who don't know what's going on. Um, but, you know, you you can see the manifestation of this sort of collective consciousness around Cop City, even just in the way that people have showed out for public comments. So over the past two months, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of residents have shown up to City Hall to, to speak against Cop City. Um, you know, on, at the beginning of June, there were over 14 hours of public comment. We were sitting in City Hall until like four or five in the morning because, um, you know, people are just so activated around this issue. And I do think that people see it as, you know, this isn't just about this facility. It's about who gets to run Atlanta? Do the corporations who want Cop City get to run Atlanta? Or do the people who are saying, you know, we don't want this, like, will, will our voices actually be heard? You point out that it's a struggle over who the city is for, as you were just saying, the city's corporate and state ruling class actors who have demanded the Cop City be built, or the people of Atlanta who have consistently voiced their opposition and demanded a different vision for the city. It is a fight over who the city belongs to, over who Atlanta is run for and who it is run against, over who is welcome to live and enjoy life here and who is expected to simply labor here for low wages and under constant surveillance. So, Micah, I know that these labels are problematic. So can this be fairly described as a class war, at least a battle in any class war? Or is that overly simplistic and does that miss something greater about the issue of Stop Cop City? Yeah, no, I mean, I I do think this is class war. And, you know, I think that the way, you know, the class class war manifests, I think, in different ways. Um, and, you know, you, you can just see it in the way that working class, especially black working class um, people have been pushed out of the city in the last several decades. Um, you know, I, I think that this this really is, you know, a battle of the many <laughs> versus the few. And, 
you know, that's not to say that everyone who is opposing Cop City has that sort of class consciousness. And there are, you know, there are people, I think, um, you know, from many different backgrounds. But, you know, I think, yeah, Ruth Wilson Gilmore says that mass incarceration is class warfare. I think that Cop City is absolutely class warfare. And, you know, sort of, as, as you said at the beginning, I think it is about, you know, cities essentially turning even further to policing as sort of the control strategy amidst rising inequality and, you know, rising uprisings and protests and, you know, people being in the streets. You mentioned city abandonment, and I want to make sure we touch on that term right now before we continue our conversation. What do you mean by Atlanta abandoning the city? Yeah, this this is also a term, um, you know, that I've, I've learned from Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Craig Gilmore, this idea of essentially, um, you know, the state or the city or, you know, the state big picture retreating from any sort of real provision of social welfare or like genuine public safety and social well-being. Um, And, you know, as that retreat happens and as austerity is imposed and, you know, as we cut spending on all the things that actually make people safe, um, we are at the same time investing in policing and jailing and prisons and surveillance, um, you know, to sort of control for the outcomes of that disinvestment. So it's both, you know, the disinvestment in communities, and then it's, you know, the follow up, um, you know, iron fist in order to actually, um, you know, make sure that that quote unquote works. And, you know, what working means is that, you know, you maintain control, you maintain class domination, racial domination, um, and you do that through policing. And so I think that, you know, we've, you know, over the past three decades, especially in Atlanta, um, you know, you, you you can see this organized abandonment play out where, you know, you have, you know, we'll probably talk about this later, so not to not to jump ahead too much. But, you know, you have the 1996 Olympics and Atlanta working really hard to, um, you know, paint this image of a city that is really good for business and it's really good for tourists and it's really good for upper class white people. Um, and in order to create that image, basically, you know, tore down a bunch of, um, you know, a bunch of neighborhoods, created a bunch of public infrastructure, poured a bunch of public money, um, you know, in into this effort while pushing out, you know, the people who live there, working class Black people. Um, and so, you know, while you are abandoning these people and, you know, tearing down any real provision of social welfare, you're also building new jails and building up your police budget and building, you know, Atlanta into the most surveilled city in the country. Um, and so, yeah, that that's sort of this dynamic of, you know, organized abandonment and organized state violence. So does a cut in social services, not just in Atlanta, but, you know, speaking more generally, does a cut in social services necessarily lead to a city increasing or a state increasing its law enforcement? Is the choice at the heart of actions like Cop City? whether citizens want a world dominated by a force of armed police or one that provides the services that people need. Are we choosing between Mm -hmm. funding the police and funding the poor? Is that the the decision that we are making right now? Are we making that choice? right? And to what degree are we making that choice? I mean, is that a democratically made choice? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that that is the decision. And I think what, what gets complicated is that it's not always a clear one for one because, you know, sometimes even when you don't take money out of, you know, the budget for things that we think of as, you know, any sort of treatment or care, what we also do is put policing into those institutions. And so, you know, you can look at, for example, the rise of drug courts and, you know, drug treatment that is actually tied to the criminal legal system. You know, all of these different things that we would think of as like, yes, I actually want people to get various forms of care and treatment and I want it to be free. 
Um, but, you know, instead of actually funding those things in a non-coercive way, we actually inject policing and control into those. So I do think, you know, it, it is the decision of essentially, you know, not just which we're going to fund, but also um, how we're going to do it, how we're going to. I think we just lost Micah. I think it got cut off. Uh, you know, into these other things, we still inject policing and control into it. Um, and it's, yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's completely undemocratic. And, and you can see that playing out in Atlanta right now, where, again, you know, you have hour after hour after hour, you know, record breaking public comments from, you know, Atlanta residents saying, do not build Cop City. And then you have them, you know, voting it through moments later as if they hadn't just listened to 14 hours of public comment. Cop City, you write, is the uh, Atlanta ruling class's chosen solution to a set of interrelated crises produced by decades of organized abandonment in the city. These crises included the threat and reality of mass uprisings against police violence, extreme and racialized income inequality and displacement, corporate media narratives in the wake of the 2020 uprisings that threatened the image of the city as a safe place for capital investment and development, and a municipal secession movement, that's of the Buckhead neighborhood around Cop City, Mm -hmm. that threatened to rob uh, the city of nearly half of its tax revenue following the uprisings. Again, threatened the image of the city as a safe place for capital Mm -hmm. investment and development. How accurate is that image? Is this a backlash against a perception or against a reality? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that it's a little bit of both. Um, And so, yeah, you know, you find yourself in 2020, there's obviously so much going on. It's the pandemic, it's the uprisings, you know, immediately you see um, this real sort of, um, you know, backlash, and I sort of hesitate to use that word because there's also always front lash and we're in an all-out state of war always. Um, but, you know, you see this sort of like really concentrated response during 2020 of corporations, you know, getting together through the various formations that they organize themselves in and saying like, we don't feel safe. You know, our money isn't protected. We've seen cop cars go up in flames. We've seen windows smashed, you know, they, and so they use everything like that. But then they also use the, the fact that there are, you know, what, what they call the water boys, young black children at intersections selling water in order to make some money. Um, you know, they use sort of this moral panic around street racing, you know, people, again, during the height of the pandemic, when everyone was cooped up and, you know, there weren't many productive ways to channel energy, people, you know, racing their cars loudly, which, you know, of course was annoying, um, but, but, you know, you have different ways to respond to it. And so I think that it was more about perception than anything. Um, and, you know, you do, you, we did see these, you know, massive, you know, crime is out of control narratives from the corporate media. But when you look at the data, you had a couple limited increases in some categories of crime, the rest are actually, you know, down over the last 10 years in Atlanta. And I think that's actually, you know, true nationwide. Um, but, you know, they latched on to these, these couple instances of crime category increases in order to paint this image of, you know, no one is safe. Um, and so, you know, while I think that, you know, any moral panic around crime, you know, has some sort of, you know, root that they can point to, it is much more about, you know, manufacturing um, consent for increased policing, manufacturing a panic around, you know, this idea that no one is safe. And so that's why I think, you know, Cop City is in some ways a response to like, the physical threat of uprisings and, you know, they want to, you know, quote unquote, train their police better, you know, to, to really manage um, uprisings. But I also think, you know, maybe more than anything, it is about projecting to the world like, hey, we take 
public safety and we actually take the safety of your money very, very seriously here and look at all of the different ways we can show you that we are investing in protecting your money. So why would the media, which is often a, a booster <laughs> for a city's bottom line, a big booster for tourism, something that is always trying to project this idea of pride in a city, why would the media, in your opinion, why would the media be reporting exaggerated ideas about the levels of crime within Atlanta? How does the media or how do the people of uh, Atlanta benefit from that kind of reporting? Yeah, I mean, so I think that the that's absolutely true of the media. And, you know, so the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is our paper of record here, the AJC. It's our sort of main outlet, been around a long time. Um, and, you know, to your point, in the lead up to the Olympics, did, you know, did major PR for the city in terms of sort of like painting this picture of what the city was, you know, acting really as a major booster for the city. At the same time, um, you know, media, especially in sort of the corporatized media landscape, is all about clicks and increased revenue. Um, and, you know, there's sort of the saying, if it bleeds, it leads. This sort of sensationalist crime coverage, um, you know, generates a lot of clicks. It generates a lot of interest. Um, and so, you know, I think you have that sort of general principle. But to get really specific, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, AJC, is owned by Cox Enterprises. And Cox Enterprises is sort of one of these corporations that make up this ruling Atlanta way class. Um, and, and, and Cox Enterprises has actually invested $10 million in Cop City. So you actually have the owner of the media that's generating the crime panics that are used as the reason to build Cop City donating to Cop City and having its own financial stake in Cop City. So it's really, you know, I think more than anything, it's, it's you know, the fact that our main media outlets here and you know cox enterprises owns axios and a bunch of other outlets as well they are you know part of the ruling class and they want this they want this you know cop city solution just as all the other ruling class actors do i wondered why axios sucked so bad <laughs> i was trying to put my finger on it for a long time i couldn't figure it out so you write that in uh 2022 Atlanta was named by Money Magazine as the best place to live and was identified by Realtor Magazine as the top real estate market in the country. The same year, Atlanta was proclaimed the most unequal city in the country. Relatedly, <laughs> Atlanta is the most surveilled city in the country, as you pointed out earlier. How can a city both lead the country in inequality and be understood by outlets like Money as the best place to live and realtor describing it as a top market. Do money and realtor right. like Atlanta because it is unequal? Does inequality attract right. capital interest? Is that an intentional project? Yeah, I mean, I think that this comes back to the question of who is Atlanta for and, you know, who 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 is it run for and who is it run against? And I think that they're they're, you know, just different sides of the same coin where you know, if you are part of the ruling class, if you live in Buckhead, if you're an upper middle, or, you know, an upper class white person, Atlanta is a great place to live because the city is run for you. It's run in your interests. It's run to protect your ability to turn money into more money and to, you know, keep your money safe. Um, and at the same time, it is run against, you know, the the black working class masses, um, you know, who who are forced. To labor here and are under constant surveillance and are under constant threat of arrest and control. Um, and so I think that those things actually go together very well. And, you know, one one sort of manifestation of this, when we talk about how does Atlanta allocate its, its public dollars, it gives, you know, a third of our annual budget to policing. 
But then so much of what could be public money and what should be public money never actually even goes into public hands in the first place because you have so much undervaluation and under taxation of all of these commercial properties. You have massive subsidies given out through tax breaks and other forms to these various developers and corporations. And so, you know, if you're a corporation who wants to buy up a bunch of property and, you know, create all these commercial developments, it is a great place for you because you're going to get a ton of public money, whether through, you know, subsidies, tax breaks, or never having to pay it in the first place. Um, and, you know, and you're going to have a city that, you know, is, you know, designed to protect your interests. Of course, if you are not that small slice of society, um, then, you know, then it is, you know, the most unequal, it is the most surveilled. And again, I think those things really go hand in hand. You write that the Olympification of the city was a process that included, among other changes, the displacement of roughly 30 thousand people between 1990 and 96 and we've reported on that on the show on our show here uh whether Mm -hmm. it's the 2000 olympics 2004 2002 many times we've Mm -hmm. uh reported on how the displacement of the poor how that always happens during an olympification of any site and you write the illegal arrest of over 9,000 homeless people again something that's been repeated in 1995 and 96 and in part Mm -hmm. through the atlanta police department's use of pre-printed tickets with categories filled out for African-American male and homeless, a partnership between the City and Travelers Aid, a nonprofit organization that purchased one-way tickets out of town for homeless people who were reportedly required to sign pledges not to return the demolition of public housing like Techwood Homes, the U.S.'s oldest federally uh, subsidized public housing project, the passage of new city laws, hyper-criminalizing homelessness, and the construction of a 1,300-bed municipal jail downtown to clear mostly black homeless people from the streets, and the destruction of neighborhoods like Summerhill replaced by an Olympic stadium. To what extent did the people of Atlanta protest this? And to what extent did the people of Atlanta approve all of this? Simply because this happens in a lot of cities everywhere. They just became enthralled with the idea of hosting an Olympics. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there absolutely were protests, um, you know, throughout this. And I think especially um, sort of around the displacement and anti-homelessness um, work, you know, you you had it was actually activists who uncovered the use of these pre-printed tickets that you know again literally had already filled in African American male homeless where they were just rounding people up on Fridays in order to put them in jail over the weekend to get out on Monday so that when you know in the lead up the Olympic Committee was visiting you would have sort of again this image of a city that you know we don't have homeless people here you know you don't no no one's going to see that. Um, they referred to the jail, the 1300-bed jail that was built. Um, what one, one person working on the, the project referred to it as the first Olympic project completed on time. Um, and so you had a lot of activism and a lot of protests, you know, especially around the displacement um, and, you know, and uh, so many of the anti-homelessness measures that were passed. Um, but at the same time, you had, you know, groups like the AJC doing so much, um, you know, to, to paint over all of the inequality and to, you know, to paint this picture of the city. And so it's, it's in a lot of ways, I think, the same dynamics that you're seeing now. And I'm not, you know, I'm not as studied on what the movement looked like at that time. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure about the scale in, you know, in relation to what we're seeing today. Um, but really, it's, I, I think in a lot of ways, it's a continuation of the same struggle. Yeah, it seems like for the last 27 years that Atlanta, if not back, go go back to 1990, even uh, in the lead up to the Olympics, it seems like they've been in a, ba- a battle over the city for now 33 years. You write, as yep. Atlanta has poured money into major development projects, 
city leadership has refused to capture the increased tax revenue associated with its investments. Sometimes this happens through financing mechanisms that divert new tax revenues from the area surrounding the development back into the corporations behind the projects, siphoning money away from schools and other public goods. Is Atlanta, the city of Atlanta, more profitable but not getting those profits? Have corporate profits in Atlanta proved to not benefit the people of Atlanta? Are corporations getting tax breaks and they're not benefiting the people who pay those taxes. Yeah, absolutely. And this is really this this really comes from Dan Immergluck's work and Julian Benet's work, where yeah, Atlanta has just you know poured so many public dollars into these major developments. And, and as Dan Immergluck points out, it's already this you know red hot market where you don't actually need to subsidize this development. They're going to come either way. These are you know appealing markets for developers, and even still. We're handing out millions or billions of dollars to them, you know, which is investment that, you know, we never actually see come back. And there's all of these different sort of financing mechanisms that end up either. Yeah. You know, we either give the money on the front end or we don't receive it on the back end because any new you know, tax revenue that does come from the project just gets you know, pushed back right into the corporations. Um, you know, at the same time, you have um, at the same time um, you have, you know, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. You have all, all of this money, you know, really, really going in, like I said, either on the front end or the back end, you have these property freezes, these, these freezes on property values, meaning that, so, you know, there's one major development, the Pont City Market, it got an eight and a half year tax freeze on its property value at around $5 million. So that's what they're paying taxes on of building valued at 5 million, when now it has an estimated worth of 1 billion. So you have millions and millions of dollars that really should be going into public hands in order to serve the public good. Instead, you know, just really staying with these corporations. So, you know, this just it just it, it irritates me to to no end that there is more funding than ever for the Atlanta Police Department. Yet they say that there's a rise in crime. And so they say, well, what we need to do is we need to fund the Atlanta Police Department even more. Well, it has been already proven in the past that more funding of the Atlanta Police Department has shown that that has no effect on crime. And then there's the claim that investing in tax relief for corporations would attract them to the city, bringing not only jobs, but revenue. And those none of those seem to have panned out whatsoever. So despite you write that despite the Atlanta ways hostility toward low income and working class black people the 2010 saw more promising reforms one through a combination of sustained struggle and mass mobilizations and this went on throughout the 2000s in 2018 the city passed local bail reform legislation mm-hmm. in response to pressure and threat of lawsuit from advocates yeah so what changed why all of a sudden is there so much support for cop city is it just the 2020 protests against police violence. Can we blame the protesters for causing Stop Cop City? Yeah, I mean, I I certainly don't think we can blame the protesters. Um, You know, I think that 2020 was a moment where, you know, all of this inequality and state violence, you know, most specifically manifesting as the continual police murder of black people, it came, you know, it came to a head in ways that it had in the 2010s as well. Um, and, you know, you saw bigger uprisings than ever and a real sort of attempt to shatter the status quo. And I think that, you know, as with any movement, what we're seeing in response is the system trying to sort of, you know, recuperate and and stabilize itself. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, it's it is about in part the response to the uprisings um, and, you know, sort of the 
the revolt of police in response. So, you know, here in Atlanta, police, you know, said, we feel so unsupported, you know, our morale is so low. And a bunch of them actually did what they called a blue flu, where they call a bunch called in sick at the same time. Immediately, they were they were rewarded with bonuses from the Atlanta Police Foundation. Um, you know, at the same time, you have this, you know, white, wealthy part of the city, Buckhead, in response to the uprisings, in response to this sense of, you know, hey, our power is waning, um, you know, declare this Buckhead secession movement. And it is really sort of this white supremacist, white flight, modern day movement. Um, and that's used as leverage over the city. And so, you know, I think it's Cop City is part of sort of the ruling class revolt against the uprisings. And so, you know, in that sense, you can say, you know, we can look at the uprisings as a critical part of the story. But at the same time, I would say, you know, if you look at the movement against Cop City and how it's actually unified so many different people, the environmentalists, people who are just, you know, more liberal, who care about government transparency, the abolitionists, the anarchists, you know, all, there's this big tent movement that has formed that I think in a lot of ways grew out of the uprisings, grew out of the defund movement. And so, you know, I think that this has really, in a lot of ways, I think, 2020 building off of so much organizing and infrastructure building has just spawned a new iteration of the struggle where both sides are, you know, upping their game and upping their tactics and, you know, fighting for, like I said, the future of the city. So as uh, Atlanta journalist George Chisi reported at The Intercept on June 6th, the city first accepted the proposal to build Cop City while crime was rising in 2021, but also while the wounds of the George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks protests were still healing. A multi-million dollar police training center in the middle of a forest with little transparency or recourse for voters felt like a slap in the face to people who had been marching Atlanta. Uh, flat for dem- for democracy. The uh, public cost is about twice as high as was reported in late 2021 when the proposal mm-hmm. was first authorized and comes after nearly two years of student opposition or strident opposition by residents and activists far and wide. City officials are quietly arguing that this was always the cost and that everyone has simply been mistaken despite no real effort made to correct that mistake before local journalists at the Atlanta Community Press Collective dug closely through the figures, not the establishment media, the Atlanta Community Press Collective. And listeners, if you want to know what's happening at Cop City, go follow them online, the Atlanta Community Press Collective. But here's the thing you write, the Atlanta City Council, or I mean, George Chisi writes, but here's the thing, the Atlanta City Council still voted to fund Cop City June 6th by a vote of 11 to 4. Now, that's really weird because mid-May polls showed that the city was basically split split 50-50 on Cop City, with a higher percentage of white supporting it than non-whites. However, as an Emory University poll found, 12% more whites supported Cop City than opposed, but only around 4% of black Atlanta residents opposed rather than supported Cop City. That suggests a split with a slight lean towards support for Cop City if it is so close among Atlantans. Why is it so one-sided in city council? I mean, with poll numbers like this, you would figure that the vote would have been 8 to 7, maybe 9 right. to 6, not 11 to 4. Does Cop City have any supporters in elected leadership in Atlanta anymore? Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is this is the thing that sort of, you know, Cop City has really um I think shattered this perception that you know what the people want is is how, you know, elected officials will govern. You know, the fact is that their minds are made up long before they walk into these, you know, city council meetings because, you know, the place that the public can speak to them is on the day of during the vote. 
the place that, you know, the people who really make the decisions can speak to them is all the backroom meetings where, you know, you have the lobbyists for the Atlanta Police Foundation, you know, you have all of the folks who represent these various corporations that make up the Atlanta way, they're all, you know, they all have the ear of the mayor and the council long before the public has any opportunity to weigh in. So yeah, you know, and, and you know, I would say even those 50-50 numbers, I think have have shifted as as more has happened, you know, since since that poll was taken, even our, you know, Georgia senators have spoken out around, you know, some of the state repression related to Cop City. Um, Bernice King, the, the daughter of Martin Luther King Jr. has spoken out. So so, you know, there's been even massive shifts since that poll was taken, such that I think you'd see even lower support for Cop City now. Um, but I think this, yeah, this gets to the heart of the issue is that it's not about what the people think. That's, you know, that's not how our elected official, officials govern, because, you know, that's not who they're accountable to. You write that seizing on and amplifying crime fears, the disproportionately white and wealthy area of Northeast Atlanta known as Buckhead, launched a newly organized secession movement in July 2020, falsely touting the supposedly rampant crime in the area. Buckhead accounts for roughly 40% of the city's tax base, and its attempt to de-annex from the city of Atlanta and create a new city immediately caused panic among Atlanta liberals who feared the loss of tax revenue and control that would accompany secession. Going back to that Emory... uh, uh, university poll from May that I uh, cited earlier, there seems to be a resounding opposition to Buckhead secession from Atlanta. That poll showed there was a 70 to 22 split overall among Atlantans in opposition to Buckhead secession. And even among Buckhead residents themselves, they opposed it 54 to 40. So who's pushing for Buckhead secession if it's not the people of Atlanta or the people of Buckhead? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, one of the things with that poll is that it did come you know, at that point now, several years after things started. And so I think that there probably was more of a split in the beginning. Um, but I think, you know, more than anything, it's, you know, there's one, one of the things that I include in the story is this, um, and, you know, that, that we uncovered years ago was some emails that we got through an open records request um, to the city where you see um, the CEO of the Atlanta Police Foundation, which is sort of this, you know, private nonprofit that's behind a lot of cop city. He is in touch with someone in the mayor's office, sort of the mayor's right-hand man, and he's forwarding the mayor's uh, right-hand man this email from a from a CEO of a corporation based in Buckhead. And in this email, this CEO is saying, hey, I'm really upset about what's happening with the water boys, what's happening with the street racing. This is all out of control. If the city doesn't do something soon, I'm going to turn all of my support toward the Buckhead secession movement. And so it is really this threat of, hey, if you don't give us what we want, which, you know, that can be Cop City, that can be, you know, any number of things, we are going to, to join in this effort and you are going to lose all of this tax revenue and all of this power. Um, and so I think even where you don't see, you know, you know, I, this, I think that there was a lot less support for it among the actual people of Buckhead, but the power players of Buckhead, whether they actually wanted to see secession or not, they knew that it was an effective wedge that they could push in order to actually win what they wanted. And so, again, I think that this is once again less about, you know, what do the people there want? And it's more about how can the powerful use it to advance their agenda? We are speaking with Micah Herskin, who wrote the Scalawag article, This is the Atlanta Way, a primer on Cop City. His other most recent writing includes the MSNBC post, If those supporting Cop City prevail in Atlanta, your city could be next. Micah is an organizer and writer based in Atlanta. You can follow Micah on Twitter at Micah in ATL and find out more about Micah at his website, MicahHerskind.com. You write that when announcing the Cop City plans, a former mayor Bottoms argued that the 
facility would improve officer morale and retention following the supposed dip in morale and increased vacancies after the 2020 uprisings. Now, this we're hearing everywhere. Here in Illinois, uh, the governor just was uh, the other day was saying that Chicago lost 1,000 cops, and we got to do something to get those 1,000 cops back immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, low morale, it's the same story. Likewise, the, you write, the Atlanta Police Foundation touted the proposed facility size and state-of-the-art nature, giving it a tremendous amount of appeal to other Georgia law enforcement agencies. So more than anything, is this cop city meant to lift law enforcement morale? Morale, because that seems like a lot of resources just to lift morale. I mean, it also sounds like Atlanta's police are pampered snowflakes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, this is, you know, a friend of mine who is, um, you know, a journalist and also a researcher went back through some of the newspaper archives in Atlanta and found that police and city officials have been claiming, have been, you know, complaining about low police morale for decades. When when you hear about, you know, rising crime, when you hear about police are, you know, feeling so unappreciated, you know, police, you know, we, we don't we do not do enough for them. That is always part of a broader political agenda, you know, be, because crime data is actually often so meaningless in what it tells us about whether people are actually safe or not. And it can be manipulated in so many ways as it was in 2020 to, again, advance a particular agenda. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go on record now saying that even though, you know, we've seen these stories about, oh, actually, crime has started to come down. And I'm sure that they're, you know, attributing that in some ways to the, you know, to the you know, approval of Cop City. Now that Cop City is going to be put on the ballot by organizers who have started this referendum effort to actually let people directly decide, I am positive that in the coming months, we are going to see a bunch of media stories about whether it be rising crime or whether they look at, you know, particular instances of sensationalized violence or crime, you know, this is, they are going to continue to weaponize low police morale, you know, supposed narratives that crime is out of control in order to keep pushing Cop City. Because if Cop City was really about, you know, crime, you would say, oh, there's this big movement against it. And, you know, what we call crime has really come down in the last couple of years. So maybe we need to reevaluate. Maybe we don't actually need Cop City anymore. Right. (laughs) But instead, they're saying crime has come down and we're also going to keep building Cop City. And so, you know, I think that it's really important to be able to look through, you know, what, what they say, what they say it's about in order to look at, you know, what is it actually about? It just seems so disingenuous and so yeah. transparent that it is incredibly disingenuous. It just, and I understand why people might fall for the rhetoric because they really truly believe in one side or they really truly support one side. They're true believers. They understand, you know, they, I, I understand it, but at the same time, it's, I don't know how people can be so easily scammed. You write in New Jersey, the governor's proposed a new $120 million state police training center. The city of Pittsburgh is also considering a plan for a new 160-acre facility with a projected price tag of over $120 million. And then you mentioned something right by my sister's home. I mean, this is like within five miles of her house. In Michigan, the National Guard is seeking to more than double the size of Camp Grayling, its current military training complex, from 140,000 acres to 320,000, a plan to bolster capacity for modern training that would threaten the forest land and river includes, included in plans for the site. We should remember, as you write, that the National Guard played a key role in the response to the 2020 uprisings and were called in by Governor Georgia Governor Kemp in response to protests which followed the murder of Tortuguita. That proposal in Michigan has thankfully, thankfully been mm-hmm. rejected mm-hmm. by the state's Department of Natural Resources and despite the surrounding community housing 
many current military personnel and their families, but also veterans who were once stationed at the camp and decided to make the area their home, they are all in opposition to the expansion of the military base. So very military community, and it was roundly opposed by locals. How much opposition Mm -hmm. is being faced by the continued expansion of the police, carceral, and militarized state and across the political spectrum, is this not just a right, you know, uh, one-sided thing, a left thing? Is this a, is there a, a consensus among people on the right and left that they are all very concerned about this expansion of the police and militarized state? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know how easy it is to pin to, you know, particular parties. Um, well, I mean, well, when it comes to the parties, <laughs> they're they're you know, they're both fine, this thing. Right, right. Um, but, you know, I think I think something that's, you know, interesting and encouraging that you can see in the Cop City fight is that people are coming to it for all different reasons. And it really is a big tent coalition. The, you know, the libertarians are on board with the Stop Cop City movement. And, you know, you don't have to be an abolitionist or an anti-capitalist in order to think, hey, maybe we shouldn't tear down, you know, at least 85, but maybe even, you know, hundreds of acres of forest to invest in this thing that nobody wants. Um, and, you know, so I think that people are coming from all different reasons. And one of the really important, you know, outcomes of this struggle already is that people are being radicalized and they are seeing like, oh, hey, I only cared about this because, you know, I wanted to keep this as parkland and I want to be able to, you know, go there with my kids. But now people are realizing, oh, if you want parkland, if you want trees, if you want a livable future, police are actually standing in the way of that. And so I think that there's also something sort of radicalizing about this struggle where, you know, people might come to it for one reason, but you're seeing this sort of merging of people realizing like, oh, you know, the the anti-police folks really need to care about the environment and the environmental folks really need to care about the anti-police angle because they really are all connected. You write that attracting big businesses and big events requires investing in policing and surveillance as a promise of stability and safety for those who would come here. As historian Dustin Jenkins has demonstrated, even a city's ability to borrow money to finance projects is tied to its investments in policing and the bond market's perception of a city's stability, perceptions that are deeply threatened by mass uprisings. So do credit ratings enforce a police state and punish any municipality that would reconsider policing, including the potential adapting of alternative forms of justice? Because you write that Cop City is meant to communicate that Atlanta is a place that takes public safety seriously and the protection of property as well, a place where people with money can come and safely turn that money into more money. To get higher credit ratings with all municipalities pursuing, uh, well, they all have to start pursuing massive police training centers and funding of other militarized right. responses to fix their right. credit rating. Yeah, I mean, and you know what I should have had at the beginning of that sentence is under capitalism, attracting big business and big <laughs> events requires investing in those things because you know I don't think that that's how it needs to be. But you know, yeah, I've been really fascinated by Dustin Jenkins' work in the last year because I think he does show sort of the disciplining impact of, you know, these bond markets and the people who do the bond ratings on cities. And, you know, this idea that, um, yeah, that you can judge a city's stability by its police force, by its ability to, you know, um, control for, you know, the outcomes of inequality, as opposed to, of course, you know, preventing and, you know, addressing inequality on the front end, just using, you know, militarized police to address it on the back end. And so I do think, you know, and and this is where I come back to, I think that, you know, Cop City in Atlanta and anywhere else 
sure, it's about, you know, it, it is about our police capacity and, you know, our police training and what you're preparing police for. But maybe even more than that, or at least as much, it's about the story that we tell about our police capacity and about the way that our police are trained and what they're able to do. It's about the story that we tell to these corporations and to these events. So when Atlanta tries to attract the 2026 World Cup or when it tries to attract the 2024 Democratic National Convention, it's saying, hey, look, you can come here and you can be safe and we're going to protect you and you're not going to have any issues because look at how much we invest in what we call public safety, which is actually just policing. Um, And so, yeah, I, I really do think it's about this sort of ideological investment in the city as a safe place for capital. And of course, you know, this brings us back to, you know, best place for business, best place for real estate, you know, worst place for inequality, worst place for surveillance. And again, you know, the idea that those things really go hand in hand. And you point out that while the cop city proposal itself might seem like less of an obvious real estate play, the city will technically retain ownership of the land, even as control of the land shifts to the Atlanta Police Foundation. The city has consistently put forward the site's proposed, quote, green space, parklands and trails for the benefit of residents of DeKalb, Atlanta and the general public. Framing the project as offering enhancements to the surrounding area, reflecting Atlanta's pattern of green gentrification as seen in projects like the Beltline. Uh, Any parks and green space built by the city will not be for the benefit of those who currently live in the area, but rather those who will be attracted by new development. Green gentrification. How can green solutions lead to gentrification? How can gentrification be green? And is, in fact, this gentrification green? Yeah, I mean, you know, so so I think in a lot of ways, you know, Cop City, I, I think that, you know, one of the things I was trying to get across in this section, because I think it hasn't been as part of a story, is that we have to think about the land that's involved in Cop City. And when you look at you know, so you have this publicly owned land, 381 acres that was owned by the city, part of a forest um, that was leased to the Atlanta Police Foundation, which is a private entity to take it, to develop it, you know, to make something new at the same time. And, you know, I hope this doesn't get too bogged down in the details. As part of the same forest, there's land that's owned by the county, DeKalb County, and DeKalb County has transferred a bunch of that land to another private corporation to create these film studios or, you know, to do whatever they want with it. And so when you look at this bigger forest, you now have a massive public to private transfer of land. And it's sort of, you know, especially on the cop city side, they're saying, well, look, you're going to have these paths, you're going to have these trails, we're going to increase this benefit for the community. But that's what they've said about every major project for the last 20 years. And especially in, you know, in the Beltline, you know, which had, oh, we're going to have all these parks, we're going to have all this green space, all these things that people can enjoy. Um, And at the same time, they promised to include affordable housing and make sure that people surrounding these new developments could stay in their houses. But what you got in practice, was a bunch of money for parks, for paths, for green space, but no money for affordable housing. And so all the people that were supposed to, you know, and not actually supposed to, but in theory, supposed to be able to enjoy these new developments have been pushed out and replaced with, you know, upper and middle class white people who are coming in through the, you know, all of these new tech jobs and, you know, these various industries that have been attracted to Atlanta. Um, and, and I really think that, you know, that's the same thing that's happening with Cop City, where there's, there's this, you know, promise of green space, there's this promise of path of, you know, community improvement. But the question is, who gets to enjoy that community improvement? And if, you know, the last 20 or 40 years in Atlanta tells us anything, it's that it won't be, you know, the majority Black community that currently lives around that area. They're not going to be around to enjoy it because they're going to be pushed out 
priced out, evicted out, criminalized out, you know, all, all of the ways that people have been pushed out in the last, you know, several decades. And then the same thing will happen as is happening here in Chicago, and I'm sure is already happening in Atlanta, where the city government closes off sections of the public parks for parks for <laughs> private events that are held by corporations. So these are no longer uh, pro- right. public parks. Downtown right now in the loop, uh, people are saying how they can't even go to the parks anymore because generally throughout the entire summer, some of the parks are going to be closed off for private events. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be the exact same thing. I want to make sure that we touch on your MSNBC.com article as well. If those supporting Cop City prevail in Atlanta, your city could be next. You write that early Wednesday morning, May 31st, in a residential area of southeast Atlanta, SWAT team showed up with riot gear and rifles. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation and the Atlanta Police Department arrested three organizers associated with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, a local bail fund that since 2016 has offered legal support and help in covering bail to those who exercise the First Amendment right to protest. The Atlanta Solidarity Fund had also helped bail out those arrested for protesting the proposed creation of a $90 million public safety center, which opponents have dubbed Cop City. And you add that Atlanta activists had seen these arrests coming in February 2023. Mm-hmm. Marlon Kautz of the uh, Solidarity Fund warned that Georgia prosecutors were building a criminal case against activists opposed to the project. Those predictions came true when the SWAT team raided the home of Kautz, Adele McLean, and Savannah Patterson and carted them to jail on charity fraud charges that experts have denounced as fabricated. So Professor Beth Gaisley of Indiana University, a charity expert who researches nonprofit governance wrote, I can't recall a SWAT team ever being involved in the prosecution of charity fraud charges. When I asked my fellow charity experts if they knew of a U.S. precedent, nobody did. If past history is any guide, Gaisley added, and unless the evidence becomes more compelling, I believe that these charges will be dropped. Calls to end such prosecutorial overreach will mount and legal observers have already called for a federal investigation. And she, there's a statement from the Legal Defense Fund, uh, Director Counsel Janai S. Nelson, saying the actions of Atlanta and Georgia authorities risk intimidating those who oppose the urban warfare training facility, widely known as Cop City. So is this not about you know arresting people for committing a crime, but the police just committing intimidation and more importantly is that intimidation working because i could see how that would be really frightening yeah yeah i mean you know these arrests are one part of the you know the broader scope of state repression of the movement so you know think back to september 2021 when the council the city council was first voting on the plan um and you know there there were at that time everything was still virtual so protesters were outside of council members houses where they were doing the city council meeting and police showed up to arrest people you know all throughout the past two years police have been arresting protesters in and out of the forest and and then charging them with increasingly trumped up charges so you know of course they literally murdered portuguita in the forest in january 2023 um and as of today there have been 42 people charged with domestic terrorism many of those people you know, were literally, for example, standing at a music festival in the forest when they were tackled or tased and carted off to jail. Um, you know, we've had people charged with felonies for passing out flyers with information about the police that killed Perkigita. Um, and then, of course, you know, most recently you have this this SWAT raid um, on the home of these solidarity fund organizers. So the point really is to say, you know, is is to intimidate the movement. It is to try to, you know, cut off 
all supports for the movement. Um, where I think that, you know, and, and I think, it, you know, in some ways it does make some organizations, you know, scared to engage or, you know, you know, I think people see, oh, if a bail fund can, can be gone after any other nonprofit, you know, can can be targeted for their supportive movement. And so, you know, I think in some ways, you know, that does intimidate people. In other ways, every time that they have stepped up their repression, the movement has grown and actually more people have gotten off the sidelines. And so, you know, more, you know, more organizations came out after, you know, the arrest of the Solidarity Fund organizers. You saw, like I said, Georgia senators make comments and, you know, they're both Warnock's and Asa's, you know, statements were very lackluster and, you know, <laughs> I don't know, it's hard to be disappointed when you have low expectations already, but, you know, really, really lackluster statements, but still they're out here saying like, hey, this is really concerning. You have all of these civil rights and civil liberties experts weighing in. And so I do think, you know, every time that they've tried to cut off the movement and, you know, attack it in a way that they think will, you know, deal some blow to it, it's actually ended up, you know, having having the opposite impact where the movement has really grown. And you mentioned that the, well, you didn't, this is from the uh, Legal Defense Fund President Nelson. Mm -hmm. He added the discretionary misuse of law enforcement to surveil, intimidate, and criminalize those who seek to change the status quo has long precedent in the civil rights movement. The recent labeling of environmental uh, activists opposing Cop City as domestic terrorists raises the same alarm. The 2017 passage of a state domestic terrorism statute has permitted a broad array of activity to be criminalized as terrorism and has been used by local and Georgia officials to label individuals, especially those who oppose Cop City, as terrorists. These unsavory Mm -hmm. practices are a prelude of what law enforcement will be empowered to pursue with even more resources should Cop City come to pass. As the killing of Tortuguita has underscored, law enforcement interactions can lead to decreased public safety. So to the police, whether it's Atlanta or anywhere, are we all now increasingly potential terrorists and law enforcement is now engaging in a war on terror against the public? Is this the war on terror come home? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that in a lot, you know, this is where, um, you know, anti sort of surveillance um, activists and anti-war on terror activists have been making the connections for a long time of, you know, sort of what happens abroad versus what happens at home. Um, And I think that it's, it is really important to to zero in on these domestic terrorism charges, which has also, you know, also been wielded against, you know, people protesting pipelines and, you know, engaging in direct actions against pipelines. And I think it's important to think about, like, what is the function of calling someone a domestic terrorist? You call someone a domestic terrorist in order to authorize extreme violence against them, you know, to be able to stop them at any and all costs. And, you know, when, when you call someone a domestic terrorist, it's a lot easier to march into the forest, as they did in January, and murder someone in cold blood and leave their body, you know, shredded with 57 bullet wounds. And so this is where I think, you know, everybody needs to recognize you know, and, and, you know, not not to be like fear mongering about it, but like anyone who is fighting for justice can be labeled a domestic terrorist. That is where the playbook is going. Anyone who challenges state power, you know, this this is where they're headed. There were people charged with domestic terrorism in New York City after the Jordan Neely protests. And so, you know, I think that this is a time where, you know, we're, we're already seeing in response to what's happening in Atlanta, people start to band together, organizations start to band together. But we really need sort of an all out effort to, you know, protect our ability to organize and to dissent and to engage in, you know, life-saving direct action. Um, because this, you know, this this is their playbook. This is their, 
this is, I think, sort of their end game to say, if you oppose state power, in our eyes, you are a domestic terrorist. And that means, you know, we will authorize any amount of force in order to neutralize you. As you know, inequality is a very, very, very difficult thing to overcome, and you can't overcome it unless you challenge some of the precepts of uh, the kind of capitalism that we are existing under today. So our governments, is the state just choosing more policing over the far more difficult problem of addressing inequality? Is, is that the way they plan on addressing inequality? And do you believe that this is a gradual, subtle slow, pernicious growth of totalitarianism in the United States by choosing the police over the people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's, you know, budgets are moral documents. Where do we choose to put our money? And, you know, where, where Atlanta is choosing to put its money is into policing, is into repression. And, you know, I do think it's important to, you know, to, to your point, to call it what it is, which is, you know, fascism and it's bipartisan fascism. This is, you know, the, the Democrat led city of Atlanta teaming up with the people who during every election season, they call these evil Republicans. And then you see them working together to essentially deploy police and the criminal legal system to silence their political enemies. You know, that's that's what that is when, you know, when you bust down the doors of a bail fund in order to arrest people and take them to jail where, you know, I've said this before, the DeKalb County Jail, people have died there in, in the amount of time that, you know, that these activists were held in that jail. It is, you know, a death trap of a jail. And that's what they're putting people in. And, you know, I don't think anyone should be in that jail um, and, and, and that's, you know, that's what they're doing when, you know, when they when they cart these activists off to jail because they don't like their political speech. And so I really do think that, you know, the all of the alarms should be sounding about, you know, what we're seeing in Atlanta, which, you know, is this collusion between Democrats and Republicans to weaponize the criminal legal system against political dissidents. One last question for you, Micah. We have been speaking with organizer and writer Micah Herskind, who wrote the Scalawag article, This is the Atlanta Way, a primer on Cop City. His other recent writing includes the MSNBC post, If those supporting Cop City prevail in Atlanta, your city could be next. That's why this is a very important thing that we should all be following, and unfortunately the establishment media is not doing that great of a job of it. That's right. Follow Micah on Twitter at MicahNATL, and find out more about Micah at his website, MicahHerskind.com. So, Micah, our final question for all of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Are we seeing the criminalization of protest as an active indigenous movement is leading activists and organizer efforts to combat climate change? So, so far, is the government response to climate change not to stop burning fossil fuels? but to criminalize those who protest global warming to the extent that they become marked as terrorists while the waters rise and the planet burns. Will the response to climate change, as far as all the evidence shows up to this point, be not curtailing the burning of fossil fuels, but police repression? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that, I, I mean, I think the answer from hell is yes, that's the plan. You know, that the plan is to not, you know, is not to stop environmental extraction or, you know, environmental devastation. The plan is to, you know, invest in police that can control for the outcomes of environmental devastation. And, you know, the the rich will have their bunkers, the rich will have, you know, their spaceships or whatever it is that, you know, that's that they think will protect them, 
you know, from climate disaster. And, you know, police are going to, you know, I think I think that that's their contingency plan is, you know, police are going to control for the outcomes because they certainly don't intend on, you know, stopping the extraction. So, yeah, I, <laughs> I think my answer is yes, absolutely. Well, there's an answer from hell for you. Micah, thank right. <laughs> you so much for being on our show. I'm going to stay in contact with you because we do want to follow up more on Stop Cop City. We've only done cool. one interview so far on Stop Cop City, and that was back in February, and that's uh, following the death of Tortuguita. Um, and we've been trying really hard. I, I've been also in the hospital a lot, but uh, we've been trying really hard to get more and more people uh, about Stop uh, to talk to us about Stop Cop City. So if you ever even have any suggestions for people who you yeah. think would be great guests, please contact us. We'd really appreciate Oh, absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Micah. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. Take care. This is not the media. This is hell. And you know this is not the media, or at least the establishment media, whether it's public or private, because we actually discussed Stop Cop City. And we're going to do it again tomorrow from a very different perspective, more about strategy. So if you appreciate us covering Stop Cop City, show your appreciation for This Is Hell, providing nearly 27 years of content that you could not and cannot get anywhere else, giving airtime to opinions and perspectives you cannot hear elsewhere, and providing that uh, content to you absolutely free, including nearly 10 years of shows right now at thisishell.com. Show your appreciation for all that and that it's always been free by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. While I am out for the next couple of weeks, I'll be doing, we'll be doing a show on Monday, and then I'll be out uh, for two weeks. Um, we will still be doing Patreon podcasts. There will be new content from that. I'm not too sure what physical ability I will have in doing those Patreon monologues, but it'll be a great time to listen to somebody who's got a huge stab wound in the middle of their stomach to see if they can actually deliver a monologue. On our most recent Thursday, June 15th Patreon podcast, we are repeatedly told the the United States is divided. We are told members of both parties in our two-party political system, they don't agree on much, if anything at all. But there is bipartisan agreement that the two parties disagree even when they do not, especially when they do not. In reality, there's a lot the two parties do agree upon. For instance, they almost always agree on going to war. Uh, They agree on Stop Cop City. They're against it. There was a long time when both sides agreed on denying climate change. And to, to a degree, they both still do, as saving the planet doesn't seem to be a priority for either party. And now they are agreeing that the pandemic that will likely still kill at least 125,000 people in the U.S. this year is somehow over. That's not an emergency. If anything, the divide in U.S. politics isn't as much a divide as a divide-and-conquer strategy by both occupying parties against the people who have been occupied, us. Also on Patreon, we finally played an interview we promised to play a week earlier. We shared our June 14th 2008 interview, so from almost 15 years ago exactly to the day, with John Bow, a author of the author of Nobody's Modern American Slave Labor and the Dark Side of the New Global Economy, 
John had already received the J. Anthony Lukash Work in Progress Award, the Sidney Hillman Award for journalists, writers, and public figures who pursue social justice and public policy for the common good, and the Richard J. Margolis Award, dedicated to journalism that combines social concern and humor. He's the co-editor of GIG, Americans Talk About Their Jobs, which was one of Harvard Business Review's best books of 2000. He also is co-screenwriter of the 1996 movie Basquiat, and as I mentioned last week during our talk with John, uh, I said something rather embarrassing about the film back in 2008. Let's just say my compliment about David Bowie's outstanding Andy Warhol impersonation, eh, it didn't go over very well. But the only way you can find out how the two parties and their backers in the press work together to divide and conquer us is by showing your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, which goes live every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts as well as a special code word that gives you a $5 discount on all our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Check out all the perks for Patreon patrons at patreon.com slash thisishell. And uh, I'm sure that you have all heard of the passing of uh, Daniel Ellsberg, past guest on our show, who was a really big supporter of our show and gave us a quote of endorsement. Uh, he was just a really wonderful person who agreed to come on our show a couple of times, which was very surprising. So we are going to be playing our 2004 interview with Dan Ellsberg uh, on our Patreon podcast this coming Thursday. And I want to thank the New York Times Sunday uh, paper because they had a front page story on how globalization has failed. And the article is a complete failure of <laughs> explaining and understanding how globalization has actually failed. Hey, you know why globalization failed, according to the New York Times? It's the Ruskies. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? They're blaming Russia for the collapse of globalization, which they said kept the kept the world peaceful for 30 years, as if between 1993 and 2023, there were no wars. It's pretty outstanding. Kat, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And please tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Yeah, this week's question from hell is, how will you be celebrating Grimace's birthday? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, a noose and a stool? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on uh, Patreon, we've got about 10 responses. Cool. Um, Essential says, they'll be celebrating by dedicating a nugget and a supersize number two to the brave... Uh, Mujahideen Mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan (laughs) Yeah, that's real nice Um, Addy says Getting a Ouija board and summoning Evil Grimace to help me destroy the McDonald's Corporation (laughs) I like that (laughs) Andy E says Bloated and ashamed (laughs) (laughs) Wow wow. That's disgusting Um, Old Grouch says Eating a homemade organic blueberry kale And ice cream smoothie While I burn the furry critter in effigy then renewing my vows to never watch anything with commercials. No, oh, all right. Okay. All right. <laughs> Peter J says, not with a shamrock shake. Bloody <laughs> things are available once a year, and I'm too full of beer to even think of a milk product. Life is so unfair, stupid grimace. <laughs> uh, Michael C says, introducing vitamins to Grimace's bloodstream to supplement the nation's diet via shake. Yeah, he, uh, Grimace does not look in good shape. No, he's, he's, 
He looks kind of tired. Yeah, he also looks like he's going to have a heart failure in the very near future. Yeah. It's all those shakes. (laughs) Uh, Mark A says they'll be celebrating responsibly. (laughs) Really, Mark? That's nice of you. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Todd H says Grimace and I will drink purple scissor until we paint the commode of... Commode a deep shade of lilac. Ugh. Ew. Ugh. Todd H. Ugh. Good lord. <laughs> Andrew P. says, with a sleepover. You gotta tuck your homies in at night and give them a good night smooch. That's, that's wholesome. That's sweet. And Mike the Giga Grouch says, taking him or them out for a bag of White Castle sliders. That's a good point. What is the gender of Grimace? I don't know. It's none of our business, but just curious. I guess default to they because sure. we're not sure. Asexual. Let's go with that. Yeah. Any more? Um, that's all for Patreon. All right. So we'll get to more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show following our guest. Uh, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly moment of truth. Has uh, Jeff sent us a tease for his moment of truth this week, Kat? Um, yes, he has. I think this is the most up-to-date one. Um, Jeff delivers part two of his essay on overweight space-time. Yes, that is exactly <laughs> what he was going to be doing. Uh, so uh, we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. Kat, who are our upcoming guests on this week's show? Upcoming, we have Miliaku Nobueze talks about her Scalawag magazine article, How to Build the End of the World in Defense of the Chaotic Protesters. It's an amazing article. People, you got to check this out. Yeah, it sounds great. Um, according to her Scalawag bio, Miyaku is a chaos orchestrator, glitch enthusiast, and constellation architect born in Detroit, rooted in Atlanta, but can be found tinkering away in the expanse of liminality. She is queer, black, and LGBO. See, I thought it was LGBO too. That's what I thought. And then Will, who is smarter than me, realized that it's Igbo. It's the African ethnicity Igbo. I made the exact same mistake. So yeah, and Igbo. Igbo and Igbo. And writes designs and dances towards the endings of this world. Relationships are her medium. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what does LGBO stand for? That's how that's how I got wrapped up in it. I was like, I searched it online. I was like, LGBO. There was no such thing. And so then I was like, oh, he's right. And who else is coming up on this week's show? Um, later this week, we wrap, we wrap up the week with Alex Hinton, who will have a conversation with us about his Sapiens article, Two Myths Fueling the Conservative Rights Dangerous Transphobia. Alex is Distinguished Professor of Anthropology, Director of the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights, UNESCO Chair on Genocide Prevention. Which should probably lead you to wonder, how the hell did we book that guy on our show? Thanks to <laughs> Kat Jarvanen for producing, and thanks to Will for training all of our producers. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show, live streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz. How would you, dear listener, like to be a producer on the show? If you can make it to our studio at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood and be here from 9.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. at least one day, Monday through Wednesday each week, and believe in what we do, you too can be part of our crew. All you have to do is contact me at chuck at thisishell.com. Tell us a little about yourself and why you'd like to, uh, you know, be part of our show. Finally, one more time, well, not one more time, we're going to be reminding you of this over and over again for the next few weeks. 
join us for our This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party, as well as the opening of the th- this year's edition of This Is Art, our art show up here in the Second Story Studios, just outside our own studio doors. All of that is happening. First floor, music, food, raffle, up here, art, Saturday, July 22nd. At the bar, downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Music, raffle, food, art, what could be better? Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.